The ability for places and communities to thrive or not is based on connectivity, access to jobs and services, and social inclusion. And the quality of infrastructure is vitally linked to delivering these ingredients. IQ Future is at the forefront of critical conversations, future visions, and infrastructure insights. Hosted by me, Priscilla Radici, CEO of the Infrastructure Association of Queensland and produced by BBS Communications Group. Welcome to IQ Future. We have with us Dr. Tony Matthews. He's an award-winning urban and environmental planner with portfolios in academia, practice and the media. He's had a wide variety of planning and sustainability projects in collaboration with researchers, government, the private sector and community organisations. Tony is also an in-demand public speaker and regularly delivers invited keynotes and speeches at academic and industry events and we'll be lucky enough to have Tony speaking at the IAQ Assembly on the 8th and 9th of September, which I'm very much looking forward to. Welcome, Tony. Thanks, Priscilla. It's a great pleasure to be here. Maybe we could start with cities and COVID. It's on everybody's mind and we don't seem to be bouncing out of it as quickly as some people thought that we might. You've described COVID-19 as a transformative stressor. How powerful do you believe the change responses will be and how long term? That's a very good question. I keep revising my opinions upwards on that one. <laughs> so just to put it in context, a transformative stressor is just a conceptualization that I came up with a few years ago and published originally to describe climate change adaptation or adaptation as a response to climate change. But it basically means a, an external phenomenon that kind of crashes across the, the road and affects all aspects of society and everyone in it. And it puts enormous pressure on government and other sectors to come up with responses by way of policy or anything else. And the longer the responses take to manifest, the more um, irrelevant the institutions start to look. So it has it has that 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 property, and we're already seeing that. I mean, you can see what COVID is doing to governments with regard to, say, the vaccines and things like that, or even the lockdown in Victoria at the moment. You know, people are just they're they're. They've had enough, uh, or a lot of people have had enough, and there's a lot of pressure coming back on the system now to get quicker about this. So that's sort of how I saw COVID a year and a half ago, and I still do. The implications and the impacts are going to be, I I think probably at this point, long-term, good and bad. And they're going to have different iterations across domains of activity. So there'll be impacts on cities, there'll be impacts on international travel, there'll be impacts on international trade, there'll be impacts on the digital world, there'll be impacts on commercial property, there's going to be impacts felt all over the place. So it's really a a question of where we want to look at the impacts happening and how long I think they're going to happen for. But I I think, you know, you've got a a sort of a a medium-term problem with regard to CBDs and what do we do with them, and maybe we'll talk about that later. And then you've got a longer-term problem in terms of, like, how do we get back to a fully open world where people are not unduly required to surrender their privacy or data or submit themselves to things that they're not comfortable with the way that we lived for thousands of years before 2020. <laughs> so I think that at this point, I think it's, 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 it's very much a long-term proposition and the impacts are long-term. A year ago, I might've said medium-term if we're lucky, mm. but now I think long-term. It's quite an interesting issue as well around privacy and data and how we live with these type of pandemics in a way that still manages some level of privacy and and keeps an economy and our economies open. I don't think we've quite solved how those levers come together yet. There's been real renewed focus on local with many of us not really being able to travel and and many uh, centres having been in lockdown. Post-COVID, cities have really been Built from the ground up, many of our cities have responded to pandemics in the past. It's sanitation and grid networks. They are have been remarkable at adapting over time to these issues. 
how do we kind of embed that urban planning in the health crises, the disease, the overcrowding? It's it's unique in how people have responded over time. How do you believe that citizens can have a greater say on this creation of, of place and the delivery of infrastructure and how we respond? Because it is a very top-down approach at the moment. Yes, um, this is true. And you make a very good point, which is that the foundation of what we would consider to be contemporary urban planning is very much founded in health and public health and health response. And initially planning, again, the, let's say the Westminster version of planning that we primarily use in Australia that came from the UK, that started out as a health profession, at least it, planners saw themselves as health practitioners because they were responding to urban conditions and, and public health concerns and in concert with epidemiologists and, and others. And so it's very true to say that public health is is a, a major driver of urban development and urban form. And we've seen that again now with COVID because people have retreated to being local. Mm. So a lot of people have gone back to their houses, gone back to their neighborhoods, they're holidaying in state, they're not traveling overseas. You know, we, we saw even peculiar things like, I mean, understandable, but peculiar nonetheless, people are rushing to Bunnings to buy seeds, you know, which <laughs> we're not quite there yet. We might get there, but <laughs> uh, we didn't get there so far in, in COVID. But so there's this big emphasis back on the local now. and 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 people, seem to have a very clearer a lot of people seem to have a clearer idea of what they want their local areas to be like that maybe they wouldn't have had previous to the the pandemic because if you think about it you don't really spend much time where you live anyway you're you're very often not there you're usually out somewhere same thing for your family mostly there's nobody there you know most of the week so you don't really think about where you live all that actively you might sort of drive past the public park and like the look of it maybe get down there once in a while but when you're sort of forced to just have that it causes you to really reappraise your sense of place locally and a lot of people have done that now and I think there's a lot of people on one side who are very happy with what they have and a lot of people on another side who realize how little they have in terms of public infrastructure and parks and that sort of thing so how do we engage those people there's multiple ways to engage them I mean we, we've we, we spent many years developing and perfecting public consultation techniques and we now have digital platforms available to us as well it's not really a case of how as in, you know, the means of reaching people. Rather, it's a case of people wanting to be reached. Hmm. And if they're not interested in the, to- in the topic at hand, um, and they're not given plenty of time to respond to it, they won't, they won't respond. So there's, there's merit at the moment in digital forums for public consultation. Brisbane Count- City Council have done that recently. Redlands have done the same and done it very well. But it, you, you need the public always to be available and willing to respond. And, and then it becomes a question of whether or not they're passionate about the issue. You, you can get some um, perverse outcomes with community consultation because, as you say, it depends on who's taking part in that consultation and it does, you know, certain methods favour different people in different lifestyles and so it's not necessarily equity, is it? Rarely. I mean, sometimes it's it's the loudest voice gets their way, sometimes it's it's market forces get their way, but in any consultation process there is inherently, you know, a form of lobbying going on or there's different interest groups and it may not be quite as cutthroat and sophisticated as you know the higher up in politics but it's there all the same so you try and mediate that you try and manage that and but there's only so much that the facilitators of public consultation can do as well so it's it's a a tricky one Mm, it very much is i think the issues around social inclusion and exclusion have certainly been brought to the fore post-covid and much more people are aware of those different equity issues across postcodes so what role does infrastructure provision play in supporting queensland's rural and more remote areas to keep and attract a sustainable population base. We are seeing seeing people move into regional areas like the Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast and Toowoomba, uh, but we're not necessarily seeing that population uptick in more uh, remote areas. 
How do we see this kind of experience and support being provided as in a very dispersed population base in Queensland? Yeah, this the, the whole regional question has come into a much different focus in the last year. And I published a piece in The Conversation late last year where I sort of speculated partly for controversy whether regionalism would be the next phase of Australian urbanism. So we'll see what happens with that. But there does appear to be a trend of people going regional. Now, figures have come out in the last few months that challenge the notion it's an exceptional trend. We'll have to wait and see uh, a little longer on that, get some, some more data. But there does appear to be, at least if you look at house price values, a move towards the regions from the capitals. But it is, again, like you say, it's, it's certain regional locations, the, more, the ones that are already better provided for, that have already got a lot of the infrastructure and you know, places like Noosa and the Tweed, that whole area, the mm. Gold, even the Gold Coast, Toowoomba, as you mentioned. So what, what's going to happen is eventually those people, those places are going to fill up and they're going to be too expensive. So anyone that wants to go regional after that has to find the next tier or the next wave of regional towns, which are, I think, what your question is, is pointed at. So what are the fundamental types of infrastructure those places need? I would say two types of infrastructure primarily. One is digital infrastructure. They have to be digitally connected and connected properly. They have to have reliable broadband. They have to have stable internet day and night, and it has to be um, stable at a dispersed level. So if you if you assume that a fair few of those knowledge workers that would leave the larger cities and head regional will continue to do knowledge economy jobs that require them to be plugged in from eight to five every day or whatever, there's going to be a high internet demand. So that has to be supported. That's, that's a primary, you know, that's trunk infrastructure. It's very necessary because people cannot go to the regions if there's no, uh, no broadband because that's mostly why they're that's why they're going there. They can go there with their jobs now, or that's a possibility it never was before. So they're not going there to work as farmhands or anything, you know, so. Which is an interesting issue for a lot of regions where they have the jobs, but they can't get the people there because the people are moving are more knowledge workers that are taking their job with them, um, but they can't fill local jobs. So that, that connectivity of how you match the livability of infrastructure and amenity in these regional areas to attract the right workers is quite an interesting issue, I think, for the nation. For sure. And we must also be mindful of and very careful of the potential for regional gentrification. Because if you have all of these knowledge workers arriving into regional towns, it'll do the same thing that the mines did. You'll, you'll have this population arriving with a much higher salary, generally, and that'll drive up the price of everything, and then it'll displace local people. Mm. And, and all of those people who are you know, not on six figures a year, who were, who were previously able to afford their house and their life or their rent or whatever, they'll be displaced over time, and, and we need to be very mindful of that, you know? Yeah, it is a, it's quite a big issue and, and just not being able to fill those jobs and then at the same time gentrification becomes quite quite big. Uh, so that, that equity of access that you talked about with digital, I think it's the same across that connectivity, you know, for energy, water, housing affordability. There does need to be kind of a base level of, of affordability that is looked at. There does and, and, and also in tandem with that, a lot of regional uh, locations need the other form of infrastructure, which I think is essential and that's social infrastructure. They need better social infrastructure so they need you know more public space more more, more yes. parks more performance areas more outdoor spaces more places where people can congregate and be active and walk and and you can build a new hospital but if you can't attract the doctors it's not going to deliver the services you need to provide the lifestyle too exactly mm, absolutely so when we talk about the fourth revolution the internet of things data um, technology is going to save the world and connect our cities and make them more sustainable and safer and connect communities 
Can you tell us what is a smart city really? Where will they be found? And can they actually deliver on all of their promises? Okay, uh, a smart city is basically a city that is heavily connected to digital infrastructure and which uses big data and AI algorithms to analyze urban trends and to automate certain decisions. And it's there is a sphere of urbanists who see this as the saving grace of cities that if we bring the efficiency and clarity and decision-making of a machine to bear on cities and we gather up enough data, then cities will become utopias, basically. Now, we've been down this road before and it ended up with, with us building modernist towers and packing them full of people into social housing and dystopia. So this idea that, that this, of the city as science is nonsense. Like a city is a combination of art and science and you cannot leave out one or the other. So the smart city agenda is very much focused on data to improve cities. And so that's its promise. And we'll come back in a second to whether it's gonna meet that promise. But the uh, other thing that you asked is where are smart cities? Well, arguably we're, they're already here and we don't really just, we just haven't really widely appreciated it. When we started carrying smartphones with us, we created smart cities unwittingly. When I say unwittingly, the public unwittingly gave birth to, because smart cities can't exist without data, and the number one source of data that they, that they get uh, at the individual level comes from smartphones. Mm. So once smartphones came along, we started having smart cities. And as we move more towards the so-called Internet of Things uh, and the fourth industrial revolution, as the World Economic Forum, who I'm no fan of, refer to it, then we're going to see a situation where it's not just your smartphone that's in communication with, with computers that are then making decisions, it's also your kettle and your toaster and your front door and your lights and your car and everything else. And so you end up in this, this data prison, basically, where you, you're constantly being monitored and recorded and that information is being fed back to the city to make decisions and, and inform outcomes, and you don't really have a choice in that. And so the promise of smart cities is that all of this, whether we're willing participants or not, will, will bring about utopia and efficiency and affordability and clean cities and crime-free cities and all that kind of thing. The reality is, uh, I think, probably something far less positive. And I think whatever benefits come from this, we need to be very careful philosophically of the negative, well, philosophically and practically, but particularly philosophically of the, of the negatives in terms of giving up our privacy and allowing ourselves to be surveilled to that to that degree, mm. which, which I think goes far beyond what's reasonable in a society. So when we think about that future and the pace of change, which is accelerating beyond what most of us predict because we think about it as the pace that has gone before us rather than uh, in front of us, what do you think that you talked about this a little bit around, you know, dystopia and what might be some of these negative outcomes but for the smart cities agenda and from a regulation point of view how do you think that we can prepare for the future and and make it more the utopia rather than the dystopia the immediate priority is to is to figure out what what the actual agenda is i mean if you look at a smart city in china it's basically social control if you have a smart city in another part of the world it may be more about what we're getting towards i would say in the next decade is a point where there's going to be so much real time data being fed back to to ai algorithms to make decisions on that we're going to know very we're going to have a much more sophisticated and strategic picture of what's happening in cities in real time and also across time. So things like, I mean, some of the real benefits here can be things like more orderly, more timely, more reliable public transport, better coordination between health providers and patients, 
better transport for patients, better distribution of patients across hospitals. For example, you don't turn up on a Saturday night, which emergency room has the lowest queue, has the small, if you've got small kids, for example, you, you'll be able to get those kinds of useful reports, you know. Some parents might, you know, might appreciate being able to locate their children remotely at any one time, you know. Um, those kinds of things, that better access to data around residential house pricing, quality of build, that sort of thing, so you can make more informed buyers' purchases. You know, there's, there's plenty of of good outcomes here, plenty of, of useful information here, and, and, and plenty of ways of, of directing things more positively. But the other thing to remember is that like, there's only so much you can automate, and computers still can't and probably never will be able to make sophisticated social decisions the way that humans can. So with the smart cities thing, you can automate a certain amount of thing like, things like traffic light sequencing and things like that, but the larger urban development decisions, the strategic stuff, still requires humans to make the decisions. So there'll be more data points and more information to inform those processes, but we'll still need humans to make the decisions. Absolutely. The joining of humans and technology, um, one without the other, wouldn't work quite as well. Thank you, Dr. Tony Matthews, for joining us on IQ Future. That's been a tremendous investigation of technology and smart cities and how we're responding to COVID. It's been a great pleasure. Mine too, an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Priscilla. You've been listening to IQ Future. This podcast is brought to you by the Infrastructure Association of Queensland and is produced by BBS Communications Group.